just show it to you again so you can pay closer attention this time. But did you, I mean, you noticed a few changes, yeah? But I mean, my favorite was the, the corpse. Like it was a different, <laughs> and he's like crawling out there. <laughs> so it was so good. But okay, we're not gonna show it to you again, but we, we showed it because we wanna notice this tendency in us to only see what we're looking for. And it means that we miss things that we're not looking for. And we're not gonna show it to you again because it is such a great illustration for what we're gonna be talking about today. And I want you to kind of sit in that tension of how you might have missed things simply because you were looking for something else. Today, we're gonna talk about that tendency in all of us to see what we wanna see and to not leave room for something different. And now to be fair, it's not that we're trying to be closed-minded, but often what happens is an idea or a belief or a perspective, it anchors itself into us and any new information that comes our way, it's very difficult for us to perceive that information without having that perspective influence it. It's kind of just the way our brains work. And there's a term for it. It is called belief persistence. Can you say that with me? Belief persistence. It is our tendency to hold on to our beliefs even when we're presented with evidence that discredits those beliefs. Belief persistence is when those narratives or those thoughts or our thinking kind of anchors itself into us, it firms us up in what we believe, and it influences every other new piece of information that comes at us. Um, So for example, if you love Trader Joe's, how many of you are fans of Trader Joe's? If you love Trader Joe's, then when you walk into a Trader Joe's, you just see more reasons to love it, right? Which by the way, have you tried the dill potato chips with the tzatziki sauce? Because it will change your life. It will change your sodium levels also, but we're not talking about that. But maybe, just maybe, there's a few of you in here that hate Trader Joe's, like it's too small. It doesn't have the other brands that you like. And if you were to walk into a Trader Joe's, what would happen? You would just see more reasons why you don't like it, right? Because that's what fits your pre-existing belief. That is belief persistence. Whatever you already believe is going to stick even if you have new information or new experience that may even contradict it. Now, there's something else really interesting to know about belief persistence, and it's this. It's the earlier that you come to believe something, the more it sticks. So that means something that you began believing when you were a little kid would be harder to dislodge in your belief framework than something, say, you learned a couple months ago. Got it? And even in a single conversation, any evidence that comes at you at the beginning of the conversation, it's presented early in the conversation, you have a tendency to hold on to that and that will affect you more than evidence or information that you hear later in a conversation. I call this the dateline effect. Uh, Dateline, you guys watch Dateline? Anyway, Dateline is like, it's a, mer- it's a mystery show. It's a true crime kind of vibe, kind of a documentary kind of thing where they do deep investigation, usually about murder. And what happens in Dateline is that they will spend the first 30 minutes about one person and they're kind of making them look really suspicious. They will talk about all the ways that are really shady about this person. And what happens for me 
when I'm watching Dateline, by like the second commercial, I'm convinced. I know that they did it, even though I watch it and I know that's not the formula, but I am convinced that they did it, I have no doubt. But then Keith Morrison is like, but wait, underneath that facade, things were not as they seemed. I am not good at impressions, that was my best stab at it, but what happens is he says that, everything changes and then new evidence comes and it contradicts everything you believed earlier in the program. But you kind of don't want to believe the new evidence because the other stuff stuck. Now, believe it or not, Proverbs talks about this. Proverbs 18, 17 says this, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Proverbs is talking about Dateline or law and order or whatever kind of ones do that. It's calling out this tendency in us to learn something, to believe it, and then let it anchor itself into our narrative and then become a filter for everything else that we encounter. And what this passage is doing is it is challenging us in that it says instead, wisdom would tell us that we can't just stick with what we already believe. Wisdom would tell us that we've gotta be open, open to new evidence, even something that contradicts what we already believe. Now, this belief persistence in us, it causes something else, and this term most of you probably have heard of. It is confirmation bias. Put simply, it's this. It's our tendency to interpret information in a way that's consistent with our existing beliefs. We've all got some kind of confirmation bias. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you have some confirmation bias. Just do that right now. Okay. It's part of how we're wired. It just is. But it's not, it's not without its problems because what it does is it manipulates us into seeing things in a certain way. But let's be honest, that way is not always the best way, right? It's not always the way that God might want us to see something in a certain moment. I mean, say that you are trying to make a decision, and so you go to the Bible, and you are looking for guidance and wisdom from the Bible, but you also go to the Bible with a little bit of a pre-existing thought of what you think it's going to say, and so when you read it, what a shock. It says what you were looking for sometimes, right? But what if God had something different for you in that moment, and your confirmation bias is gonna make you miss it. Or say that you're experiencing some kind of tension with somebody else and you kind of blame them because they're selfish, because they're always selfish. That's your narrative about them, right? And so everything you see about them is going through that filter of they are selfish. How could you ever get past that and, and reconcile and have forgiveness? I mean, do you just like give up on that person? your confirmation bias will build a wall between you and that person. What we already believe deeply impacts how we view whatever it is <laughs> we're facing. And so it's only when we recognize this tendency in us that we can be freed up to discover something new, to discover something that may be true that we wouldn't have seen before. And we've got to see this bias in us if we're gonna let it stop fooling us. 
In our passage today, we're going to be in Mark 3, so we'll have that up on the screens in a minute. You can pull out your phone if you want it there, um, or just listen. In Mark 3, what's happening is that this is a time in Jesus' life where he was misjudged because of other people's preconceived ideas about him, their confirmation bias. They had pre-existing beliefs that caused them to judge Jesus, and there were a few different people in this passage that had that about him. So we're going to look at how it played out, and we're going to just look honestly at ourselves to see, could that be something that we do, the same thing that people did to Jesus? So Mark 3 verse 20 says this, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to go take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. Verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, they said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Okay, so we've got a couple different things that are happening here in this passage. We find Jesus at a house. He's teaching or or he's healing or something in this house. And a crowd gathers. And Jesus' family, his biological family, is also there. And they decide that they kind of need to, like, rein Jesus in just a little bit. I mean, like, the way he was teaching and all the healing he was doing and then doing it on the Sabbath, which is a thing that we read about, also happened in Mark. It just wasn't appropriate behavior. This isn't right. This isn't how we raised you. He must be out of his mind. Or in the Greek, it says he has lost his senses. Somewhere along the way, Jesus' family built these preconceived ideas that they had about Jesus. They had already decided the verdict. He must be crazy. He's going up against our religious leaders. He's saying things on behalf of God. He's got like a Messiah complex. Now, we don't know from the text how this thinking that his family was doing got started. But, but what we do know from another passage over in John is that his family didn't believe him. In John 7, verse 5, it says, for even his own brothers didn't believe him. And if you think about it, they grew up with a brother that was a little different, right? I mean, he never sinned. And then all of a sudden, when he gets to be around 30, he starts calling disciples and he starts doing miracles and preaching. And I can imagine it would have been hard for them, having grown up with Jesus, to not get a picture of him. And it was hard for them to accept this idea, like, could he be an important prophet? Could he be the Messiah? And so with that mindset going into it, they hear in this passage about what Jesus is doing and they conclude he must be out of his mind. I mean, this was simply more evidence for them to confirm what they already believed to be true. Okay, pause that plot line for a sec. Let's go to verse 22. Let's look at the religious leaders because they also had some preconceived ideas about Jesus. Verse 22 says, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now where his family called him crazy, the teachers of the law, they straight up say that he is from Satan, he is possessed, he is controlled by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But do you hear their reasoning? Their reasoning is a little weird. They're they're saying, he's driving out demons, 
so he must work for Satan. See, like that's kind of, that's like being like, that guy's putting out fires, he must be an arsonist. That's the, like, it doesn't really make sense. You're freeing people from Satan's grasp, you must be in cahoots with Satan. It makes no sense, but see, they already had opinions of him. So everything they saw had to go through their pre-existing opinions. They had a religious paradigm that he did not fit in. Their paradigm said, we follow the laws. Jesus, we see you breaking the Sabbath. Their paradigm said, if somebody is infirmed or in some way needing to be healed, well, that's because they don't need to be healed because that's their punishment. God obviously punished them and they're doing something wrong. And if they were gonna be healed, God certainly wouldn't do it on the Sabbath, Jesus. So they come in, with all the stuff that they'd already seen Jesus doing, they formed their opinion, this guy is bad news. So that even when they see him doing something good, freeing people from demonic possession, they still say it's bad. They can't see it any other way. That is confirmation bias. And that's what happens to the religious leaders. And because of it, they accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. But as we said, their, their reasoning leads a little something to be desired. And actually, Jesus calls it out. In the next verse, here's how Jesus replies. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's saying, I'm fighting against evil. How could it possibly make sense that I am evil? Both Jesus's family and the religious leaders, they believe something to be true about Jesus because they already believed it to be true. And that thought, those pre-existing beliefs anchored themselves into them in such a way that any new observation they made of Jesus would just go through the same old filter. And because of that, the religious leaders and many of his family missed out on what Jesus had for them. And for us, that same thing can happen. When we are so myopic in our views or our opinions, we are in danger of closing ourselves off to what might God want us to do or, or how might he want us to respond in a certain situation. Let's talk about some of the, app, the implications of our confirmation bias. First, let's talk about how we approach Jesus or, or the Bible or our theology as a whole. We've got to be so careful that we're not just approaching it to confirm what we already believe. So as we think about our personal theology, this idea of what do we believe about God, we have to ask how often are we allowing our existing beliefs to color any new insights we might find. Here's what I mean. Say that you are a Christian who believes that it is wrong to drink. And so you go to the Bible and you read a verse that says this, like in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And it will confirm what you already believe. It is never a good idea to drink. The best thing is to just stay away from it altogether. You interpret that verse in line with what you already believe. But say that you are a Christian who believes it's okay to drink. 
And you read this story about Jesus who's at a wedding and they run out of wine and he takes water and he turns it into wine. Now you, with your pre-existing thought, you might say, wow, it must be okay to have wine be part of the celebration. And if we run out, we should get creative about how to get more. You make it fit your pre-existing beliefs. One theologian said it this way, often when we read the Bible, we wish to harmonize it with our belief system and see its meaning in light of our preconceived theological system. How often is that true of us? How often do we want to, instead of really knowing the truth, we just want to be right and stick to what we already think. Now here's the reality, we all have beliefs for a reason and it is good and it's appropriate to have more ways that you have evidence and to learn about why do you believe what you believe. That's just called educating yourself and learning. But when you approach the Bible with an overall mindset of having a closed mind, with no openness, no humility, where God might possibly change your view, that is when you're letting confirmation bias get in the way. It's why it's really healthy to listen to podcasts by people that you don't agree with or read books by authors who have a very different perspective than you. And I say all this as somebody who needs to learn this just as much as any of us. Just two weeks ago when I started researching this message, I Googled confirmation bias in the Bible. And the very first article that came up was called How to Battle Theological Confirmation Bias. But the organization and the website that article was from was one that I knew and I do not like. And I have a lot of very different theological opinions than that particular organization, especially when it comes to women in leadership. And so I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read that article. And then it hit me, oh, that would be pretty hypocritical if I didn't read that article. And so I clicked on it and I read it and I might have even learned something. But here is the point. Because I was literally writing a message on this, I was highly aware of my own confirmation bias. And because of that awareness, that's what allowed me to set that aside and be open to something new. And that's what I'm trying to say. We've gotta be aware of it so that we can admit it and recognize it, that how it might be sabotaging us. It's not that we still can't come to the same conclusions as we had before, but at least now when we're putting in new information, it's gonna be through an open-minded filter, not a rigid closed filter that we already know what we're gonna come up with anyway. Let's talk about a second implication, our politics. This is another area where it is so important for us to recognize our pre-existing beliefs and how they cause us to jump to conclusions. Um, let's use an example of a news channel. If you, for example, already believe that say ABC News is liberal leaning, then when you watch it, if you're not aware of your confirmation bias, you will certainly hear things and see things where you go, see, I knew it. It just confirms what I already know. And vice versa, if you believe ABC News has more of a conservative bent, you're not aware of your bias, when you watch it, that is what you'll believe more of. 
There is an organization called the Cornell Political Union, and it's known for holding events where they have a 30-minute speaker come on some debate-worthy issue, and then there's a Q&A, and then the audience debates, and then the audience votes on where they stand on the issue. And back in 2019, the CPU invited a woman named Janique Stewart. She was a guest that they had lined up, and she was going to talk about abortion as morally wrong. And about two months before it was supposed to happen, the CPU uninvited her. Now, everyone involved in the story agrees on those facts so far, but this is where the narrative diverges based on people's pre-existing beliefs. Stewart, the, the guest, said that this happened because of her conservative views on marriage and sexuality. Um, after being uninvited, she posted on Facebook that the CPU told her that having her speak would be, quote, tantamount to allowing a racist to speak who held pro-slavery and pro-Holocaust views. And after that, Fox News hosted her on a radio talk show, and a Princeton University professor who was part of the conversation, he said, this act further cemented the left's legacy of branding everyone who disagrees with them as a hater and a bigot. So... Thinking about this in terms of confirmation bias, um, for conservative evangelicals that believe that faith and moral commitments are under assault, when hearing a story like this, the conclusion would be, anytime there's a story that has a bias against a Christian, it would confirm what is already believed to be true by that person, that faith is under attack and that the left is pushing their no morals agenda. That's one side of the narrative. But here's what the Cornell Political Union said about it. They said that canceling her speaking engagement had nothing to do with her beliefs. They refuted her claims of discrimination, and they stated that they never negatively characterized her beliefs or attacked her character. They also confirmed that part of their philosophy as an organization is to regularly invite speakers on both sides of an issue, that they have a long history of having both liberal and conservative speakers. The reason that they gave for it being canceled was because of security concerns. They said that they had discovered some information about some advocacy activities that she had been a part of, and they felt that that could lead to a situation where the security of their members was jeopardized. They believed that that would require them to get additional security, and they could not afford that for this event. Now, somebody right-leaning might say, I don't buy it. It was all about her conservative beliefs. And whereas somebody left-leaning might hear this story and come to the conclusion that it's just more proof that conservative evangelicals are stirring up controversy where there isn't any, or they're seeing something as persecution that they must stand up against. Either way, same story, two different narratives, firmly entrenched on what they already believed. Now, I don't know which side is accurate. I don't know these people. I don't know who was telling the truth. And that's the point, right? Confirmation bias, it causes us to take sides in stories like this, even when we can't possibly know what the truth really is, simply because one side of the story fit our already existing belief about the world. But don't we want to be people who think critically about what we believe and who don't simply jump to conclusions and then act on those conclusions in the way that we talk, in the way that we post on social media. If we force new information to go through a rigid filter of what we think anyway, then where is there room for growth? 
or, or change? Where does transformation happen? What I want you to know today as we talk about this is that it, it doesn't have to be this way. Our confirmation bias does not have to keep fooling us. Getting back to the passage in Mark 3 from earlier, for the religious leaders, we don't really get a resolution on whether they came to believe in Jesus and were able to set aside or change their mind about what they already think. I mean, based on what we read about the rest of Jesus's life, they don't, uh, at least most of them don't. But, but we do read about a religious leader named Nicodemus who was willing to set it aside what he always had believed and question and believe. And in fact, Chris is gonna talk more about Nicodemus next week. Jesus's family, on the other hand, some of them did change their mind. Um, in our passage, remember, they said he was crazy, that he was out of his mind. But later in the gospels, we see that some of them did come to believe. After Jesus's resurrection, at least two of his brothers accepted him as savior. James was one of them, and James wrote the book in the Bible called James. And he was one of the very significant leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And Jude, another brother, he also became a believer and he wrote the shortest book of the Bible, Jude, and he was sung about by the Beatles years later. Just kidding. <laughs> Different Jude. And then there's Mary, Jesus's mother, who became a faithful follower of Jesus and was one of the leaders in the early church as well. And had they not been able to set aside their preconceived ideas about Jesus, I don't think they could have accepted him. And I don't think they could have made the impact on the early church that they did that has influenced us even today. It is possible to set aside or at least not let your confirmation bias be fooling you, but it takes work. And in order to be motivated to put in work like that, you have to believe that the implications of confirmation bias are too important to ignore. We've talked about two implications, but there's one more in all of this, one more way that our confirmation bias plays out. And, and while we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, I think it's possibly maybe the most tragic impact of confirmation bias. And it's this, that it shows up in our view of people. Our preconceived narratives about other people cause us to judge them and label them I mean, it might be as simple as seeing somebody come in late for work and you already have sort of a, a label for them that they're flaky because you've seen them be flaky in other ways. And that, that belief about them might even cause you to act in a certain way. You might not trust them. You might talk bad about them. And it leaves no room for a realization that for all you know, they have a really sick kid at home today and it is killing them to even have to be at work. The thing is, we, we so easily put people in categories based on very little that we know about them. And when we do that, it just builds a wall between us and them. And a lot of times it prevents us from loving them or even having any compassion on them. Instead of me explaining this more, um, we have a video that I think does a really good job of it. So why don't you take a look at this? It's so easy to place people in boxes, drawing lines, creating sides. 
There's us, and there's them. Those we feel comfortable around, and those we don't. There are those of us with many chapters, and those just starting their own stories. There's the well-to-do, and those doing what they can. There are those we share something with, and those we don't seem to share anything with. Welcome, and thank you for coming today, guys. Today I'm gonna to be conducting an experiment uh, where I'll ask you a series of questions. Now these questions will be very personal questions, and for us to get a true result, I need you to be completely honest with how you respond. The first question I have is who in here was the class clown? Who is never on time? There's us, we who have tattoos. We who feel lonely. We who have been bullied. others. We who are madly in love. We who have overcome great adversity. won the championship this year. this way about us where we see one thing about someone or even a couple things and it causes us 
to believe something that might not be true about them. And we label them and we categorize them and we think of them as other. And then that narrative, it affects every other thing we see from them. And when we do that, what we miss out on is people. We miss out on what it is to, to know someone, to, to be able to experience compassion, uh, to, to learn from someone, to grow alongside someone because we don't even give it a chance because our confirmation bias doesn't leave any room for us to. So for us today, this is the question that we're asking. Where might your confirmation bias be getting in your way? Is there an opinion about somebody that you need to re-examine? Or have you closed yourself off politically or theologically instead of looking with fresh and open and unfiltered eyes? You know, at the end of the day, confirmation bias, it's, it's based on us wanting to be right, wanting to hold on to this belief that we are right. And so to overcome it, we've got to figure out what is the antidote to that. And you know what it is? It's humility. Humility is how we make room for transformation. We've got to admit that we might be wrong on some of these things. So let me give you something really practical to do this week. In these moments when you're watching the news or you're scrolling through social media or you're having a conversation with somebody and in your mind you hear something and you say, see, that's, I knew that was true. See, I knew. It's what I've always said. Could you instead, what if instead you opted to choose humility? If instead you said in your thought, I, I might not be right about this, and I'm going to be open to a different way of thinking. That's the invitation this week, to pay attention to that this week and see what God might do new in you. Would you stand with me as we pray to close? Father, we are grateful for how intricately you have designed the way we think, our minds. And yet, God, we, we admit today that we recognize that they trick us sometimes. And they even pull us away from you sometimes. And so God, I would ask that you would open up our minds, open up our eyes for, for you, that we would have the humility and the willingness to, to recognize what might be getting in the way of that, that we would be able to receive grace and mercy from you to be able to set that aside, that we would become new, that we would be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next week.